Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today is The Stacks Book Club Day. It's a discussion of Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy by Heather Ann Thompson. I am beyond thrilled to finally be discussing this Pulitzer Prize-winning book on this podcast after three and a half years of sort of, kind of, talking about doing this. Our guest is the brilliant activist, lawyer, and author, Derricka Purnell. Her debut book is coming out on October 5th, and the title is Becoming Abolitionists. You must read this book. It is so good. Today, we talk about the events of Attica, what stood out for us in the book, how we imagine these events playing out in 2021, and a lot more. There are some minor spoilers on today's episode. Be sure to listen to the end of the episode to find out what our book club pick will be for October. If you're looking for more from The Stacks, consider joining The Stacks Pack. You contribute monthly and gain access to our new bonus episodes, our virtual book club, a community of other book lovers, discounts on merch, and a lot more. Our first bonus episode just dropped, and it is an interview by KSA Lehman of me. So you know you want to join the Stacks Pack to hear that. Just go to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join today. Some of our newest members include Chloe Ray, Masera, Margaret Miniman, Diana, Megan McNeil, Betsy Tomzak, Danielle Manis, Sarah, Ashlyn Sipless Hochchild, and Amanda Reiko Andonian. I really could not make this show without you and the rest of the Stacks Pack. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Now it is time to finally dive in to the Blood in the Water episode of the Stacks. All right, everybody. This is a monumental day for the Stacks. We are finally discussing Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy by Heather Ann Thompson with the incredible, wonderful, amazing, brilliantly talented and smart and just wonderfully great Derricka Purnell. Derricka, welcome back. Hi, thank you so much for having me again. I'm so happy. I don't think you, you probably actually don't know this story, but people at home listening, some of them do. So I'll give you a quick, quick, I'll loop you in. I read this book for the first time in 2017 and I loved it so much. I immediately went to my mom and was like, what do you remember about Attica? And she basically was like, I remember the prisoners like killed a bunch of people and whatever. And I was like, that is not what happened. You don't remember anything. Like I was so mad. And then I was like, I need to go listen to someone talk about the book. So I went into my podcast app and was like, you know, Heather Ann Thompson and like Blood and Water. And I could only find two podcast episodes that talked about the book. And one was like some really highbrow literary thing. And they were like not talking about race at all. But like they weren't really talking about the stuff I wanted to talk about. And then the other one was like a super inside baseball lawyer podcast. And they were talking about, you know, all the legal battles and the the, I don't even know, you know what they call them, but all the like little movements and things that they were doing. And I was so upset. And then I was like, you know what? I should make a book podcast. So Blood in the Water is the book that actually like led me to make this podcast three and a half years ago. Oh so, my gosh, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. Wow. So being able to talk about this book, finally, I've been telling everyone this origin story for three plus years. And now that we're finally like going to talk about it, just I'm really excited, though I probably 
don't I don't know that we'll be able to do justice to the book that I the conversation that I wanted to have three and a half years ago. I think I've changed so much and learned so much that it's probably going to be totally different. But I'm just really excited that you're here to do this with me because I think that you're great. And I know that you're going to have such insights um, because you are a lawyer and because you are involved in prison and policing and, and abolition and all of these things. So with all of that being said, wow. what did you think of the book kind of generally? Yes. Wow. So I, I think the book is just what it would take for a historian, like a certain kind of historian to tell a particular story of an event, especially one as traumatic as the Attica Rebellion. I just don't know what it was like to sit through like files and files and files and rooms and to fight and contest. And so that she was able to put all this in here and the way that she told the stories, like some of it's the eulogy, some of it's just narrative, these like glimpses, then their characters. At first when I read it, I was like, okay, I feel like she's being very sympathetic to some of the prison administration. And then as the book goes on, you're just like, oh my gosh, I cannot stand this person. Right. So uh, the book is just, just incredibly well done. Yeah. It's just an, am- like an amazing text. Like I, it's, I don't it's, yeah, it's just it's, yeah. it's overwhelming how much information, like you said, it's, it's a thick book. Like it's not, it's not a little book. And so it, yeah. it seems as if she left no stone unturned, um, which is important given like the nature of what it is. And now that I don't think like we have access to these documents anymore. Still, and we so still it's don't. just, yeah. So it's just like an incredible account that she was just able to get all of this in, in that time period. And now we have this to talk about. So, yeah. So you yeah. don't know this also. I, I, I should have filled you in with some of these things, but you don't know this either. No, okay. um, I just recorded right before I talked to you, I actually recorded an interview with Heather Ann Thompson that is going to air um, the week after your first episode. So everyone else has heard from Heather a little bit. So I might have to fill you in a touch here and there on what she said, since you are not privy to that information. But that being said, the other thing that we're commemorating with this episode is that this month, September 2021, marks the 50-year anniversary of this uprising, which is so um, crazy. I, I should tell people what I think of this book. Everyone knows I love this book, but I will say on a second reading, um, I found it a lot harder to get through. I knew what was coming. I rem- I started mm. to remember like the details about like, you know, Frank Big Black Smith, like his torture. I I could I kept remembering, I kept waiting for the picture that was in the book. Or like there were things like that where mm. I was like, I don't want to read this part because I know what's coming in a way that I didn't feel the first time I was so voraciously reading the book. I was like, I don't, I I need to know what happens. And so it was a little bit more upsetting for me to read the second time. I have more sympathy for people who told me the first time I told everyone to read it, they were like, why didn't you warn me? This book is like traumatic. Oh yes. Super traumatic. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I think I was just so wrapped up in the story and feeling like I didn't know any of this the first time that I was reading it. So I was like, wasn't really thinking about the trauma in the same way as I was this time. And I also think for me, this was sort of an introduction to me a lot about like prisons. You know, like I had read the new Jim yeah. Crow at this point, but I hadn't read a lot about what it's like in prison for people. Since then, I've read a lot of memoirs and a lot of other books that talk about this stuff. And so I had a different understanding. But this book was a sort of a weird, I guess, place to start. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I can absolutely see that so this is my this is actually my first time reading blood in the water so i learned about attica um the attica uprising through other texts and then through talking to like organizers prison lawyers and so this is my first time getting through like the text Mm. and so it was like oh wow it's like so much more comprehensive than what i anticipated even though i knew all of the awards i knew all of the claims i knew other work that had been done on it so i i I knew this as like the the book i never gotten through the text because i had learned so much about attica through like people and through like it just it's just the thing that you have to know about you have to study and so through like pamphlets or through like the Black Radical Tradition Reader, right? So I had been exposed. I had known about Attica. I know like the history. I knew about the murders. I knew about all of this stuff. But I had the level of detail that she mm. pulls together in this book, I had not known. And, and so I, that's why I think when I first started reading, I was like, oh, this seems interestingly sympathetic <laughs> based on like what I know of Attica. And then as the book went on, I was like, 
oh, okay, like I see, I see what turns and what moves she's making to bring everything to full view what's happening. So I can imagine on the second read to get through this would be so much more difficult. But now like I know sort of what to expect. Yeah, I definitely, it was definitely a lot harder for me the second time. One of the things that I think, I don't, I don't know if you could read this book and not have this thought, but who knows? One of the things that really struck me was how similar conditions are for people in prison 50 years later. Like I just, I mean, some things have changed, like people can shower more often, but so much of it is the same fucking shit. Like we talk so much in America about progress and, you know, things take time to make change and all this bullshit. And this book was just like a reminder that actually it doesn't take any time to make change if you want to make change, if the powers that be want to see changes made. And this book is a reminder that like so many people's wants and desires are so unimportant, you know, like, yeah, I found this book to this reading to be much more bleak, I think, is a way I could I guess I could put it. It's like there was so much that struck me in a way that I just don't remember from the first time. Like and I think maybe because it's the 50th anniversary. And I also think because I read it in conjunction with your book, you know, I I, I read oh, the first half of your book. I see. Yeah, I read the first half of your book. Then I was like, oh, my God, I need to read Blood in the Water. So then I quickly read through that again. And then I went back and finished your book. And I think that like the combination of these texts kind of in conversation was really, it, we talked last week about a lot of hope for me. I don't know. Reading right. this felt really bleak. Like, I don't know. I don't know if you had that sense as well. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing that I felt was just a lot of anger and frustration, mm-hmm. not necessarily at like how the stories were presented, but just because of how familiar it is and exactly what you just said, that so many conditions are the same. And when you look at the reform movement, especially the prison reform movement, the way that they present the problem of prisons is typically one of conditions Mm. and not the fact of confinement. Right. And so it's absolutely important that, you know, conditions are sanitary for as long as we have prisons that people are, you know, treated with dignity and they're able to have food and light and medical attention and medical care. Right. Like all these things that the prisons have been demanding. But also not to like to remember that one reason why people are well, the state had been interested in reform is because they thought that it would be a way to quell some of the riots, to quell mm-hmm. some of the, the, the right. So it, it became so much about the conditions for like the prison administrators. On um, one sense, they were angry and sort of like blamed the left or blamed black people. And on the other sense, like even the intent of the main superintendent of the person of the question of the Oswald figure, right? He's interested in prison conditions because he thinks that prisons can actually be a rehabilitative source. Right. Right. So he's committed. He sees himself as like a good guy. It's like, look, if we if prisons actually felt and looked how they were supposed to feel and look, then we wouldn't have these uprisings. We wouldn't have these riots. We wouldn't have these grievances. And what gets lost is actually the fact of confinement, right? The, like that people were being incarcerated, the reasons that were people were being incarcerated and rehabilitation through prison. It's probably not a good option because these people shouldn't be in prisons in the first place, right? right. It's, it, it doesn't speak to the condition. She speaks of it a little bit, right? She talks about policing in their neighborhoods. She talks about how some of them are incarcerated for parole violations, but it's still like the fact of the confinement is problematic. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wanted that to come through a little bit more, but yeah. like it's right. And it's not just because they were nonviolent and she gets to like some of their stories, which I think is incredible, but the fact is still the problem. Right. What you were talking about before also about like how she kind of paints some of the figures who turn out to be horrific, horrible humans (laughs) as like sort of sympathetic in the beginning. I I agree. Like I think Oswald is like a particularly of note in that way, like that he comes across as like he's trying to be this good guy and he inherits this problem at Auburn and, you know, he's just trying to like do right by everybody. Right. And then like we quickly find out that he's such a pathetic small man and like his ego (laughs) is so fragile and like that he's personally offended by all of these things and uses his personal feelings 
about how he's being spoken to or like how he's being perceived to retaliate and punish prisoners over and over and over again. And like, and that he's held up as this like liberal figure like that, that whole idea of an Oswald, like that we see today all the time in politics, right? Yes. Constant. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that like Joe Biden is an example of that, right? Like this person who is, who is held up as like, you know, he's the progressive, he's kowtowing to the progressive people, Mm -hmm. but, but Mm -hmm. really he is so concerned about his image and like so concerned and like want, and he is the author of the crime bill. And like, he has a history of like all, and like, that's one example out of the current president, but we could do it for every president we've ever had. We could do it for every senator we've ever had. Like we're seeing it constantly. And the way that she sort of writes his story is just so, I think it's so well done. He becomes like one of the most important figures, not only to the story, but also like to explain how something like this could happen. Like he becomes a figure that a symbol of this moment, right? Yes. Yes. No, absolutely. I think what struck me with his character, oh, I guess it's not a character. I know I always say character. (laughs) Right. With this character. But what struck me, I, I guess, he is sort of a character, right? Because this is her portraying him to some degree, right? right? right so right, right. what struck me with Oswald and his um, remarkable similarity to other people in administrative positions who are facing people and their grievances, like the same responses, you know, change can't happen overnight. I'm on your side. I'm reasonable. I'm fighting the good fight. And then you, you look at the demands that were coming from the prisoners and what's so sad, Tracy, is that they are so similar to lists that we see from like Black people, people of color at colleges, mm-hmm. at businesses, mm-hmm. at prisons today. Like literally like more Spanish speaking officers and counselors, Black cultural courses, mm-hmm. better medical care and treatment, fire incompetent psychiatric staff. Right. So it's so better food, better clothing, improved right. libraries. So many of these grievances you can find in Black neighborhoods, Black schools, from Black students and white schools. It's it's the same set of like demands for like the basic conditions of human life. And then you have the I'm on your side liberal person who's like, I'm trying my best. Be reasonable. And it's like be reasonable about trying to get fresh fruit. Right. About, you know, not not receiving medical care. And so right. sometimes it, I even had to watch myself, but I was like, come on guys, accept, accept, accept the 28 demands. <laughs> like, yeah. just please, please, please. You don't know what's coming. I right. know what's coming. So I find myself even doing that. I did it and then too. Even, right, right, right. And then even still taking a step back and having to remember like, oh yeah, this is the bare minimum. Right. Like he should be grateful that they're asking for this. Like this should be like the minimum. Right. right. And so it's, yeah, sometimes it can present as like the prisoners weren't being reasonable right. um, because these demands were he met most of them. And right. then it's like, no, he didn't. He 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 actually did it. And the prisoners were right. Like the right. people who were bound were right. It's hard though, because it's like we know as the audience, as the reader, you know, we have hindsight is 2020, and it's hard to be like, look, 39 of you are gonna die now. Yeah. You know, and it's like Again, it's that bleak, that bleakness, right? It's like, I know what's coming and I know the right answer as far as like standing your ground and like demanding what you deserve and all of these things. And then I'm also like, I don't want you guys to die. Like, yeah. and it's, it's a hard, it's a hard feeling. And I can only imagine in the moment how much harder and, and more difficult decisions these are. And again, like, yeah, to your point about you know, progress and, and the demands that were, that these are the same kinds of demands, almost the same exact demands as people who are not incarcerated, um, who are students and who are, you know, people in their workplaces, all sorts of things, government employees, Amazon employees, right? Like we're seeing this everywhere. And I just, one of the things that stuck out to me and I'm guilty of this thinking too, is like as a society, so not individuals, but like as a larger society, we don't value people who have been convicted of crimes, right? We think that they're dumb or we think that they're not worthy or we think that they're people we can throw away. And it's like these men at Attica and and the people before them, I mean, 
Auburn is talked about in the book. Uh, yeah. George, George Jackson. George Jackson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that the, all these, that this is, their Attica is not um, unique of the time period. This is all part of a tradition, right? Like this is just one moment, one moment that spiraled in a horrific way, but like that this is all part of a, a larger conversation um, that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. But my point is like that we're conditioned as a society to think that people who have done something, have harmed others and have been put in prison because of that are not intelligent or not capable of organizing or like that these people, like this book really forced me to confront a lot of the, a lot of that kind of thinking that's just been ingrained in me that I've never challenged on my own. You know, like Mm, I think mm -hmm. that I saw people who have been imprisoned. This book helped me to start to see people who have been imprisoned in a different way because we're fed so much propaganda and like so much of that, like prisoners are bad and violent. And I, I totally understand how, when the news came out in 1971 of what had happened, that people were like, of course the prisoners castrated and murdered people. Like, of course you would believe that lie because we've been taught our whole lives to believe that black and brown people are violent and horrible. And these are the worst of the worst. And they're like, it's just like the rage part of it is certainly watching this cover up unfold and being like, we're still falling for this shit every fucking day. Like we still see this shit. I mean, you know, firsthand being from St. Louis, being an activist on the ground after the murder of Michael Brown, like, you know, that we were told that he was a monster and he was this and he was that. And it's like, no angel, no angel, no angel. Yeah. And it's like, that is part of it. We always are taught to side with law enforcement, even though we know every single fucking time they're lying to us. We know that. I know. And what what was so remarkable about this book is that even when the story had to be corrected, that all of the guards had been killed with bullets and not sliced or mm-hmm. or had mm-hmm. their throat slashed, that their families mm-hmm. refused to believe the truth. Refused to believe it. They refused to believe the truth. They said bullshit. They they refused to believe the truth. And so, yeah, I thought that was just so indicative of a commitment to white supremacy mm-hmm. in the state that was so in- unexamined. I, and I love your point about the ideas that we've been fed about, you know, people who are incarcerated, black and brown people who are prisoners. I think what's so incredible about that, and this is related to our imagination conversation, is that there is way more evidence, way more documented evidence of the violence of white people towards mm-hmm. people of color in this country. Mm-hmm. Just way more evidence of genocide, slaughter, lynchings, castrations, jailings, right? And so even if we compare the level of violence, right, that comes from colonial, capitalist, carceral conquest, if we compare that to the violence that happens in our community, it far outweighs that, mm-hmm. far outweighs it. But it's, because it's used towards established borders and boundaries and communities and neighborhoods, it's that that level of violence is acceptable. The level of violence that guards went into those prisons every day and inflicted upon the people who are incarcerated there, completely acceptable. The retaliation and rebellion, unacceptable, right? So it's, yes, I love that point so much. It's who gets to be the legitimate user of violence in order to secure an end, right? Yeah. So if you're fighting and using violence to get free, you should be shot down. If you're using violence to incarcerate, you should be applauded and you should get a badge or a promotion for being a hero. Right. And you should face no no consequences. Repro- no yeah. consequences whatsoever. And you should be protected. Right. Yes. Like, it's not just that they didn't have consequences, is that that at every turn people in power did everything they could to protect these troopers and these COs and all these people who are part of the retaking. And like, look, I understand that prisoners are not supposed to have uprisings. Like, I get it. You don't have to explain that to me. And I certainly think that like there should have been some form of consequence if this is the system in which we live and we're trying to uphold this. However, on the flip side, the fact that all of the indictments (laughs) were against the prisoners, like that even after people were murdered and even after this was a, a total fuck up, in my eyes, we see that the state believed that they did the right thing at every turn and were willing to sacrifice anybody and anything that they had to. And they were willing to lie and to cheat and to hide documents and to get judges yeah. and all of that. Like, 
they were willing to commit to this so fully because it obviously meant they knew that the other side would have been, the other option would have been catastrophic for the way that we understand prisons, right? Like if 50 years ago, the Attica brothers got amnesty on September 12th and gave up the hostages and they got all of their demands, like talk about imagination. What does it look like now? Like what is prisoning, what does prison look like now? Is it even worse or is there this movement of like we were able to work together and, you know, like I I can't, I honestly can't even imagine it, which speaks to my shitty imagination, but I don't know. (laughs) No, stop. Stop saying you have, you're an asshole. You have shitty imagination. No, you don't. No, stop. Um, I wondered something similarly. And the state refusal to grant amnesty had, I think, very little to do with the actual uprising that was happening in Attica, mm-hmm. but rather the the potential of further uprising. Yeah, yeah. Right? And mm-hmm. so it's, it reminded me of what I um, kind of wrote about in Becoming Abolitionist with the South African colonel who decided to use extraordinary force against the students who were protesting in Soweto. And during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, he boasted that he proudly broke the backs of the organizers by shooting into crowds of unarmed children. Mm-hmm. And that was his training to send a message to deter future uprisings from students who wanted a free, liberated, non-apartheid South Africa. Right. And so now what this Attica uprising response means is that for any prisoners, you know, who dare to be, um, who dare to rebel, who dare to say, Stop starving me. Stop subjecting me to sexual violence. Stop subjecting me to environmental violence. There was one man who said, I had not seen stars in 25 years. Mm -hmm. 25 Mm -hmm. years, right? Don't subject me to this level of violence. And we're going to resist because we deserve that. And the things that we're asking for are basic dignities that each human being deserves, incarcerated or not. For them to be met with such show of violence was to send a message to future prison organizers who dared to tell the state that they demanded more. Mm -hmm. Right. And while I I don't know if you've had a chance to read Elizabeth Hinton's book, America on Fire, the history of uprisings, the untold history of of uprisings to police. I haven't read it yet. No. Really good. But love this book. What one thing I gathered from that book is that. Protests against police have become remarkably safe in the last 60 years. Hmm. Just more safe. Like there used to be these huge shootouts with the police, right? And so what happened is that to stop police terror, neighborhoods would organize and rise up against cops who would constantly surveil them, who would beat them, who would sexually assault them. And they would engage in all of this, right? And what has happened over time is that police have gotten increasingly aggressive and protests have gotten so much safer for police. But you wouldn't know that because mm-hmm. the number one <laughs> feature of protest that's condemned is violence. Mm-hmm. But these are the safest protests we've seen in decades. Same with prison violence. Prisoners go on hunger strikes and they're put in solitary confinement. Right. So right. If, you're, if you're penalizing prisoners for peaceful, nonviolent action in order to demand their compliance with state violence, now what do you expect prisoners to do? Like, what do you expect people who are incarcerated to do? And I just find that, you know, the level of force was intended to dissuade future uprisings and it's had a chilling effect um, so far. Do you think that the reason that the state and Oswald didn't warn the prisoners that they were going to come in with force if they didn't accept that last offer, do you think that that was so that they could be violent? Or do you do you think that there was some other motive? Well, I couldn't actually quite call it. So I remember the draft agreement wasn't supposed to be presented as an ultimatum. Because right. I initially assumed that if they presented it as an ultimatum, they expected the prisoners to then retaliate against the hostages. So that mm-hmm. was my initial assumption, which is unfortunately quite generous mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, to, to the state. And then I also, yeah, it, it seemed like they did absolutely want to end it. That you have hundreds of troopers outside eager to go in, eager to wreak havoc. 
and destroy, you know, this rebellion to punish brutally the people who had demanding, you know, just basic dignities and necessities um, to, to carry out the rest of their confinement. And so it's, it, the more I like think about it, I absolutely think it was sort of a trigger event. It's like, nope, okay. And you can tell with the immediacy, right? The second the time expired on the on the deal, they moved forward, mm-hmm. right? There was they were eager to do that. What do you think? I, I think I, originally I thought this sort of the generous idea of like they were trying to make it so that the prisoners like didn't hunker down and like that the officers could go in like as safely as possible and do their thing. But of course, like knowing how it played out, I think that some of it was like they wanted to, they wanted the element of surprise so that they could do the most damage. Mm, um, mm-hmm. I mean, cause otherwise you can't really explain the way that they went in, right? Like you can't explain all that fucking tear gas and all the guns and the, the bullets that were in the guns and allowing people to go in with guns that weren't registered. Like they clearly knew that these troopers and, and other law enforcement people were pissed off like really fucking mad and wanted to make a point to all these black and brown people and communist white people and, you know, cop killers, like that they really wanted to make a point of like, don't fuck with us because we have the guns and we will destroy you. And I think that the people in charge knew that. I mean, of course they would never admit it, but like, you don't, you don't send take off your back. Yeah, you don't take off your back. Like that's like some real corrupt cop shit that we, you know, we recognize now. Like when people are like, we need dash cam footage. And then it's like, oh, it was out of camera. Like, what do you mean your camera was off? Right. How did it get turned off? Like it's that same shit. So I, I think they didn't warn them because they wanted to to cause the most chaos possible. I found it really interesting that so many of the prisoners didn't understand why the cops came in with so much force. Like to me, that was like sort of a moment where I was like, wow, these, these young guys were more naive than maybe I, I thought that they were. And it makes sense. A lot of them were like 19, 20, 21. Like I didn't know how horrible the police were when I was that young, you know? And like, obviously I, I did not live a life that, that led me to be in contact with the police nearly as much as I think some of these some of these young men did. But I I was struck by the naivete of that. And like, I don't know. I just I, I wish that some of the prisoners were more cynical and were like, they're coming in and they're gonna kill us if we don't take this. Like I wish that they would have seen seen that. Though I couldn't see it either, I guess, but you know, I wanted better for them. Yeah, I think that one thing that they were holding on to was the idea that the cops wouldn't kill or risk the lives of one of their own. Yeah. Right. And right. I, we simply know that's not true for lots of reasons. You know, right. I I think cops are pretty expendable. Yeah. Even though I think the job is much safer than what television or the government, what have you, let on. They let you think that Every day a cop's put on a uniform and enters into a dangerous profession where they don't know if they're going to come home. It's much more dangerous to be an electrician or a gardener or Mm -hmm. a farmer or a truck driver than it is to be a cop. You look at cop fatality statistics on the job, way more dangerous to be other, like many other professions than to be a cop, right? But I think that cops are still expendable because they're still at the they're the foot soldiers of capitalism and the prison right. industrial complex. They serve a greater purpose, which is to maintain order so that the elite can enjoy their lives. And so if I mean, Heather, what she does in the book is explain that lots of CEOs and lots of cops are also just poor white people who depended upon the prison as a source of employment the cops, they depended upon being police officers as sources of employment, right? This is Ruthie Wilson-Gilmore's argument that cops, the prison industrial complex is a labor source for surplus labor. So this is where people go and get jobs. So I think that they were absolutely expendable knowing what I know now about right. the profession, because these are people who give legitimacy, their deaths give legitimacy to the violent institution. So then they can be replaced, right? right? So I don't think the state has an interest in preserving the lives of people who become cops because if they did, they would be committed to abolition, which would then mean more people can live and not right. have to have a job predicated upon violence. 
Right. And so once the once the prisons start realizing like, oh, they're not even sending medical help to the hostages who are here, like this is on us to take care of them. The hostages became a burden right. because they had to figure out how to care for them, you know. And so it was just such such a terrible and sad turn of um, events that really I think shows how class functions. Mm. Like order is more important than the lives of people, especially the prisoners and also the prison guard. Right. That's so interesting too, because if for the for the state, if something happens to the hostages, it actually like is better for them. You yes. know, like then they can say the prisoners are they're monsters, they're criminals, they're killers, like they have no regard. Why should we give them anything? You know, like the the death of the hostages i'm sure the the state would have preferred them to have their to have been stabbed somehow but like those deaths actually helped the narrative for the state yes which is so fucked um okay we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back taking care of your health isn't always easy but it should be at least simple that's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, we're back. I have to ask you a hypothetical back to imagination. I, this is something that I've been, been obsessed with since my first reading, and I am still obsessed with it. Oh, wow. If this okay. happens in 2021, who is getting called in as an observer? Who are the people that you think prisoners would want to be there and slash or some of the people that the state would want to be there also? Wow, what a question. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about it. Okay, yes. So I don't have, I have lots of feelings about this list. Okay. I, I'll think of who I think the most accurate list is, and these are not reflective of who I think should be called in. That's what my list is too. It's a lot of people that I'm yes, like, this okay. is the person who would get the call, but not necessarily the person that I think has the has the skill and or like activism experience that is needed yes. for this. 
Okay, so some of these people do, some of these people don't, but this is who I think would loosely be associated as observerless. So I think that Sherilyn Eiffel with LDF will probably be called in. Um, I wasn't sure if women would be called in or not today. I thought about that a lot. Oh, that's interesting because they call for Constant Baker Motley and Shirley, uh, Shirley Chisholm. So I was yeah. like, uh, Yeah, you're right. They did. Wanna... They did. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't put any, I didn't really put any women on my list because I was like, maybe they wouldn't let women go, but who knows? Oh, Um, wow. So yeah, I would say Sherilyn, um, I feel like she's, you know, she's ED of LDF. So I think she would be a huge one. I think Al Sharpton would be a huge one. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think people would like sort of expect him. I can also see their kind being mm. requested because there's still a significant Muslim population, black Muslim population. Yeah. Ah, oh, who else do I think would be called? Okay, I'll give in? you some of mine. Yes. Again, these are not the people I think should be called. These are the people that I think would show up. I think Sean yes. King would be on the list. I don't think Sean King would be on the list. So I'm very curious about why you think Sean King would be I think list. Sean King would end up on the list from the state. You know, because remember the prisoners oh, had people okay. and then the state had some people that they were like, oh, well, we also think this person, this black person should be there. You know, like, well, I, why do you think they would call Shine Because I think so that they, I think that they would be like, oh, he's a black activist that black people listen to. Like, I think that that would be the misguided, like, well, but he's also like, we can work with him. Like, he talks to the media. Like, I think that there would be some push to have him in the space. Wow. That was, you threw me for a loop. I was not expecting that. The other person okay, I thought of was so- Ben Crump, the lawyer. Yeah, I thought of Ben Crump too, yeah. Um, and then I thought of some journalists. I think perhaps Wes Lowry. Wes Lowry, yes. And absolutely. I, I also thought of Clint Smith because I know that he does a lot of like writing and he works at the Atlantic, but he also has spent a lot of time in prison. So I think that he might make the list. And then the only women that I sort of loosely thought of were the three women of Black Lives Matter, because I think, again, that's like those are, you know, like the way that they wanted the Black Panthers there, like that there is a larger party activism there. Um, wow. Group, okay. Think. So those are, and then I also think probably like AOC, you know, like I think there are maybe Cori Bush or like maybe some elected officials that are like popular because there were definitely some like yeah. pop- popular names. Maxine uh, Waters. Yeah. Yeah. I can see Maxine Waters being called in. I can see Maxine Waters going and being like, yeah, same. I could like, I could really see her actually showing up. I, I feel like I'm missing probably like some New York Times people, you know, like real, like well-known journalist, but maybe that today's day would be like Don Lemon. You know what I mean? Like maybe it wouldn't be a writing journalist. Maybe it would be like a TV personality. Oh, yeah. Wow. This is, I love this question so much. (laughs) Now this is what I want to do for the next 30 minutes. Come up with an observer list. Yeah. I think I also probably didn't come up with enough um, people from the state side because I just don't know those people but I'm sure they exist. Like, do you, do you think they call in like Tim Scott and they're like, you're a black Republican, like go in there. Oh, wait, which, are we thinking New York? Are we thinking? No, I'm thinking, isn't Tim Scott the, the black Senator from, from South Carolina? South Carolina, yeah. Yes. But I think it would be state specific. So I think oh, if okay. New York, it wouldn't be Tim Scott. Right. They'd have to find a black Republican. I don't think he's, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't think they would. Cause yeah, you're New right. New York. So blue. Yeah. It would be, I can see. Yeah. I can see them calling like, um, Glenn Ford, uh, which is interesting because Glenn Ford was at the Fortune Society, which was a huge prison advocacy group. But I can see them calling like Deanna Hoskins. See, like I don't know my New York politics with, well enough. You, you're giving me names I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, yeah. So people who are with like um, clothes records, no new jails. Got it. Um, voice. Uh, oh, what's his name? Oh, my gosh. The person who helped with the Amendment for Organizing in Florida. What's his name? He couldn't even vote in the election, but he organized. Oh, for the that. For, yes, 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 yes. Um, yes. Oh my gosh, on the tip of my tongue, Desmond Mead. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that was going to drive me up a wall. I know it's probably very specific, but no, I yes, know that Desmond feeling. Desmond Mead and Norris Henderson, they are like people who are formerly incarcerated that um, lots of people on the political spectrum trust. Mm-hmm. Um, in this work, so I would say they would definitely be called in as a, as observers, and I think the state will probably be okay with that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I could see that too. Okay. On the flip side of this question, and this is another thing that I thought a lot about um, after my first reading, less so this time, is how is this event different if Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Medgravers, these civil rights leaders are still alive in 1971? In 71? Because there's no way that they don't call Malcolm X to be an observer or ask for him to come or Martin Luther King if those people are alive, right? Like they're on the list. Right, 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 right. They're on the list. Do they show up? Are they involved? Do do they distance them? Like, I, well, it's complicated. A, so Malcolm X falls into disfavor with the Nation of Islam. He, you know, converts to a more traditional form of Islam, starts his own mosque. So he's in a different relationship with the Nation of Islam and right. the Black Muslims who are probably incarcerated. So I, they call for a Farrakhan and Elijah Muhammad said, no, Farrakhan couldn't go. So it could be the case that Malcolm X then enters, but not through the nation. But, but he's, the New, he's the New York, he's got the New York temple. So he is the New York guy, right? Yes, but not with the nation though. Not like, with the so nation, he, but don't you think some of these guys maybe would have made a slight semi-split? Like, do we think that, that he still has favor in New York? That's what I'm, that's the, that's what I'm yeah, <laughs> trying to discern yeah. about whether, yeah, if he was still in a nation, absolutely. But I'm not actually sure of the like specific politics of the Black Muslims incarcerated, how they felt towards Malcolm. Yeah. Malcolm was also formally incarcerated, right? right so right. he organized, he left out, he left prison, he requested to be transferred so he could have access to a library. So he gets some of the demands. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't honestly see it going either way. Yeah, same. Martin Luther King is also very interesting because he was very unpopular. Like by the time of his death, he had been thoroughly um, attacked by the state. So he's not seen as like, the peaceful king that we have community service day for on January 20th. You know, he's criticizing capitalism more. He's organizing in Chicago around class. He's trying to organize a poor people's campaign. He's fallen to disfavor with black churches because they think he's getting too radical. So if, if King continued on the trajectory, we don't, I don't know if we see him as a peacemaker. Mm, like it, so it wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be the king we know today. It would be interestingly a much more radical king in 1971. Yes. So this is if this riot would have happened in like 1964. Yeah. Yes, maybe I could see King being called in. Maybe, but 1971. Oh, so tough. Yeah. (laughs) It's really hard, right? Like these, like, but that is something that I think about a lot is like the ways in which the assassinations of. Of, of those two men specifically have robbed so much future history, like nearby history, not 2021 history, but like, you know, if they hadn't been assassinated, they probably would still have been alive in 1971. And like, what does that interaction look like? And like, maybe uh, Martin Luther King isn't called, question. you know, like maybe he's not called, but maybe he has something to say about it, you know? And like, oh, what is know, that press conference? Thir- it's Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Ooh. Marshall would have been, cause he's, you know, He's the lawyer. He's yeah. the, justice, the judge. He's like the the person who is critical of King and he's critical of Malcolm X. He's the person who works with COINTELPRO a little bit. Mm. Like he, he's like, he's a very, int- I mean, we see him as a hero, like black lawyers, people on the left, liberals, progressives, but there you go. Marshall was very frustrated with King and people who were doing sit-ins and stuff. So I can actually see they're good Marshall being called. I don't I can't remember when he was appointed to the bench, but I would say Thurgo Marshall was probably one of the people yeah. um, who get who gets called in as a negotiator. Okay, I'm totally changing the topic because we have to touch. We're sort of running out of time, and we have to touch on the hostages' families. Oh, because yeah. that part of the book was I felt the most conflicted I think I felt in the entire book. I think the stuff with the prisoners and with the state, I was like, I feel very clearly about a lot of this. But when it comes to the hostages' families and, you know, and they're not, in, they're not a, all of one mind, so I got to right. give them space. But I was so mad at the hostages' families who could not understand 
and see that their story and the story of the prisoners were linked. Like that could mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. appreciate that, you know, that, that didn't want the prisoners to be paid and they were trying to get in the way of their checks, right? Like that they yeah. were like, not only do we want this and that, but we want to make sure that these people don't get paid. And of course, I also understand that as humans, and I am definitely guilty of this, that there's like a want for revenge sometimes. And there's a want for like, you put us in this situation and this is your fault, right? That you didn't have to have this uprising and you didn't have to take my brother or my dad or my cousin Mm. or whatever. So like, I get that, that like personal hate and like personal revenge. But on a bigger picture, I'm like, how are you guys not seeing that this is all the same story? Like that part was so hard for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sort of reminds me, and this is like a, a broader thing um, that I, I noticed with the concept of justice, right? Because justice is often a standard for punishment and revenge mm-hmm, and retribution. Mm-hmm. And so what I noticed is that when so many activists were calling for justice for George Floyd or justice mm-hmm. for Michael Brown, what they meant was prison mm-hmm. or the death penalty mm-hmm. for the person they associate with like killing or taking their loved one or taking someone from the Black community. We also have to remember that whenever there are cop killings or prison guard killings, there's a family behind each one of them. And they're calling for justice, right? So this word, once again, becomes contested of what it means to be just. And so you have these people calling for justice and they think that their cause is every bit of right is yours. And we expect the courts to deliver justice. And not only are you delivering ju- not delivering justice, you're now paying the families of the people who are responsible for the death of my loved one, mm-hmm. which is why we have to just get rid of this word justice from the criminal legal system. Because there's just no justice there, right? It's just right. this game of who can get the most from the state. And every time I've noticed, even with like Mumia Abu-Jamal, whenever people organize to get him health care to make sure he can get you know, his hepatitis C shot to make sure that he can recover from COVID. The family of the cop that he was convicted or accused by of allegedly killing, they organized to stop this. The police organized to stop this. Whenever people are trying to get Asada Shakur off of the like FBI most warrant list or trying to stop her from being a fugitive, the cop's family organized against that. I mean, this is 40 years later. Right. right. 40 years later, people are still livid about, you know, her flight to Cuba. They're still upset that Mumia is claiming that he's innocent. They're they're angry at, you know, these appeals for freedom, even today in 2021. So that those hostages families were so angry and so upset, I think just reflects this broader trend of what people think justice is mm-hmm. and how they have so much faith in these systems that they're capable of delivering something called just, whether it's monetary through a civil lawsuit or through a prison conviction or through a pardon, through clemency, whatever. They are so invested in this singular system that it becomes the eggs, that it becomes a basket that they put all of their eggs in, right? This is why right. we have to reduce our lives on these systems in the first place. But yeah, it's just... Yeah, it's it's frustrating. It's frustrating. And the other part of it is like in this particular story, we see time and again, the people who killed the hostages, the people who fucked over these families, it wasn't the prisoners. It was the state. Right. You know, like in this case, it's not even as direct as as it is in the Asada, you know, if you believe that she did it and that's your family member, then you believe she shouldn't have things because you want to punish her. Sure. But in this case, it's like the state, the prisoners didn't send you those checks to try to fuck you out of being able to sue them. You know, like the the prisoners, yeah, the prisoners didn't do a lot of this stuff to you. So I understand being mad at them because without them uprising, then there is no hostage situation. Like I fully fucking get that. And I'm sure that if I was a family member of the hostages, I wouldn't be as, you know, I wouldn't be as like feeling as strongly as I am right now. But what given as an outsider's perspective, which is all I can offer, obviously, is like they didn't try to 
trick you out of your money. They didn't do anything to try to harm your family members or harm you. Uh, They didn't go in there with guns blazing. Like they didn't drop tear gas on you. And yet still, like, it's like they can't let go of this narrative because it's so ingrained in us that like prisoners are bad no matter what. And that law enforcement is good no matter what. And like, and, and that's complicated by the fact that these hostages are law enforcement, right? Like those yeah, were their jobs. Super, super law enforcement. And some of them were <laughs> civilian employees of Attica, but still like, like in their jobs yeah. were predicated upon the exploitation and incarceration of people who are exploited in their neighborhoods. Right. And right. like, it's like that, the reason your partner, your husband, your brother have a job is because of capitalism, because it undermines and exploits Black people in these other areas in Brooklyn, in the Bronx, in Harlem. They get sent to upstate and you have a job because of that. Right. Like, right. So the prisoners didn't ask to be there. They didn't ask to be in this country. Right. They didn't ask to be in this country. <laughs> like, right. right. They didn't right. ask to be here. Their ancestors didn't ask to be enslaved, right? They're Grandmothers and great grandmothers didn't ask to, to flee the Jim Crow South, right? Their, they, their fathers and their mothers and their children, they didn't ask to be exploited in jobs during wartime, only to be let go when de- and deindustrialization hit their cities and jobs move overseas, right? So none of these things these this group of people asked for. But yet, even still, just as overseers benefited on slavery. And there were wars that were fought under slavery. There was slave rebellions. Overseas were killed. There were, were all sorts of rising rebellions. They didn't actually put in that position. They were fighting to get free from it. And unfortunately, because of capitalism and because of white supremacy, your loved one was complicit in maintaining this system. This person as an overseer, your person as a prison guard, as a right. CO, as a cop. And right. it's just like, we have to reckon with your complicity in this system or you can help join the people who are trying to undermine it. So yes, it's so infuriating yeah. that yeah. it's simply presented as like guards versus prisoners. But it's actually capitalist slave owners, plantation owners, people who, the 1% who's forcing these rebellions in the first place, forcing right. this polarization in the first place between the people who are hella, hella, hella exploited and people who are slightly exploited <laughs> less above them. Right. And the other thing, this is so small, but um, the family of the hostages invoking the Truth and Reconciliation Committee in South Africa, that really pissed me off because, you know, damn well, those motherfuckers would have hated Nelson Mandela and everything he stood for if they had been in South Africa. And that shit just really just like irked me on just a just like a fucking know your history shit. Like it just really made me mad. (laughs) <laughs> I know. The, like the word is like history is so it's making me think of your conversation. Like when you just asked me about kings. It's like, yeah, the king that we remember right. that we're taught about, that king would have been invited, but not the king in like 1968 to 1971. Right. <laughs> and so right. yes, you just get to invoke Nelson Mandela, but not actually the, the right. revolutionary violence that he committed. And the fact that he was a prisoner. <laughs> But he's like one of the most famous prisoners ever. Like you don't get to invoke his legacy talking shit about prisoners. Like that is what he was. That was that was his legacy. And speaking of legacy. Part of the reason why he was a prisoner was because the ANC also formed a militant wing. Right. That was violent against the apartheid government because all of the nonviolent peaceful actions they didn't care about. Right. They didn't right. care about. So you just don't get to hide all of this history and then talk about his peace. No, right. And just ugh. like, yeah, just invoke truth and reconciliation and not deal with the whole history yes. that led up to it. No. Um, okay. I just want to, this can be brief also, but what is the legacy as you see it 50 years later of Attica? Oh, this is such a good question. I know so, it's sort of a big one. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge question. It's a huge question. So I think what's incredible about Attica is that for the last, even the last year under COVID, watching all of the prison strikes, the hunger strikes, the rebellions, the uprisings that's happened in prisons and in jails all across the country, one legacy, unfortunately, is that many people are demanding the same sets of demands, except for like transfer to a non-imperialist country, but roughly demanding the same sets of demands that we witnessed from 1971. And even those demands, like you said earlier, have been part of a greater tradition of people organizing within prisons to try to get free, to try to get some relief 
try to get some like literally fresh air, fresh food. So watching those repressed, those state repressed the same set of demands and organizing around the same demands. I think it's one legacy in terms of the police. I also think it's incredible that people are still continuing to sacrifice their bodies, their times, their, their the little freedoms that they do have while they're incarcerated in order to figure out how to like fight back against the state. So there's still a tradition of jailhouse lawyers. There's still prisoners who are organizing every single day. Just early this year, there were two uprisings in St. Louis at the jail. Mm-hmm. You know, so people who were breaking windows, setting fires, throwing castles out, saying, help us. They're leaving us in here to die. Right. And so one thing I hope that we know, hope that we draw from the legacy of Attica, so it's imperative that we're connected to people who are organizing and who are doing work on the inside because without like their organizing, we just have no idea what people are going through until they tell us or until it's too late. And so I am so excited when I learned about inside outside campaigns or inside outside book clubs early this year. I was in the inside outside book club and I had a reading partner who was current who was incarcerated. Now he's out, thank God. But us able to read together and then it became less about the book and more about a sense of community. Mm-hmm. He started telling me some of the grievances that he was experiencing, what it was like for him to be incarcerated while COVID was happening. Right. So it's these sorts of connections I hope are to, are in the legacy of Attica. They also help us to figure out how to forge relationships and help people who are currently incarcerated trying to get free. Yeah. So good. Okay. I'm going to mention just two small legacies that one is not great and one is good. Um, The one that I think that is not great, the one that I think is an unfortunate legacy is the way in which the media still continues to believe the state at every turn. I think that like we still Mm -hmm. are seeing Mm -hmm. this and, and, and the ways that the media is involved in politics without being accountable to these political actions or like, I guess not politics, but human rights. I mean, the whole thing, like the way that the media is, mm-hmm. is still, is still here. And then the other thing, and I hadn't thought of this, but Heather Ann Thompson mentioned it when I spoke to her earlier, is that the litigation part of this story and how the prisoners didn't just take it and that they were like, we are people and we deserve rights and we are going to have lawyers join us and push back, not just against us being indicted and being charged, but also demanding that we are owed something. And I think that like that, I, I, I don't know a ton about it in the history of it, but in my mind, I feel like that leads us to where we are now in the ways that people push back against the state through litigation. You know, like I think that that's part of the conversation so yeah, those would be my kind of two bigger legacy things aside from what you said, or in addition to what you said. Um, yeah, the, I, can, I would love to respond yeah. quickly to the part about the prison litigation because I'm so conflicted around the prison litigation. Like, I'm sure. Conflicted, right. So in the one sense, it's absolutely incredible that, that there's a tradition of movement lawyers, even today, like Access St. Louis works with RCD defendants in St. Louis, and they're currently litigated to close the workhouse. My first litigation I've worked on was a prison closure campaign, right? Hmm. So I think it's so, so, so important. And what just made me so angry about what happened in Attica, just reading the part where the lawyers went to the judge's house like three o'clock in the morning, they made their arguments. He signed the federal order that was a temporary injunction. The lawyers take this injunction and they like rush to the prison and they can't even get in. Right. right. And it reminded me of um, it reminded me of something I learned in law school in one of my classes, one of my first classes. And it was that the court has no army. Mm. And so all of our hope in the execution of a judicial order is basically in the good faith of the executive branch. And in that case, it was a prison administration. Right. And they knew that they could just say, no, we're good. And they probably were going to get cover for it. And they did. And so it just, rem- it was such a sober reminder, like, oh, right. Like, I remember days in Ferguson. It's like, oh, we have this court order. And then seeing the police go, okay, cool, sure. Right. And it's just like, it's so important that the I know it's weird saying this as a lawyer, litigation often gets held up. It's like, we're going to go to court. And every time 
Donald Trump would do something, the ACLU would get tens of gajillions of dollars to go like fight it in court. Like that's very important, but it's not equally important. It's more important that people continue to use their bodies to resist the violence Mm. because the court has no army. So we can't just keep putting our faith in litigation to get us free. Like we literally have to do every strategic tactic, including organizing, protests, mass demonstrations, letter writing, pod, like literally everything against right. the state. And it can be easy to default to lawyers as the people who are using the Constitution, but that's it's it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna leave it there. Uh, yeah. We didn't we didn't talk about the title and the cover, which we always do, but I don't know. I have nothing to complain about with this book, basically. Um, I I just think it's beautiful on the outside and the inside. I agree. Very beautiful. Yeah. The picture on the front is just like so powerful. And I just love, I just love this book. Um, Again, here's my last push on the podcast, but I will continue to push all the way through October. Uh, Derica's book, Becoming Abolitionists, Police Protests and the Pursuit of Freedom is out October 5th. That is a week from Tuesday. If you're listening to this, please put your pre-orders in. Please request it at your library. Please make sure that your bookstore is going to have it for sale. It's a great book. You do not want to miss it. Also, pro tip, buy a few copies for family members for the holidays. I'm just saying it's a good one. People need to read it. (laughs) Derica, thank you so much for being here. Of course. This was incredible. I literally could have just kept talking because you're just so funny and so brilliant. You were able to bring out very specific parts of the book that made you like angry and sweaty and happy and curious. I'm sweating too. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you again to Derica for being my guest. Our October book club pick is a modern day classic about love and friendship. It is Terry McMillan's 1992 book, Waiting to Exhale. We will discuss the book on Wednesday, October 27th. And you can tune in next week to find out who our guests will be for that conversation. If you love this show and want a little more of it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Our editor is Christian Duenas. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite. And our theme music is from Tagira Jis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas.